I'm Kellen Vu, a junior at Stanford University, and this is Infodemic, a Stanford conference on social media and COVID-19 misinformation. Infodemic was a virtual conference that took place on August 26, 2021, in which leaders in public health, medicine, ethics, and social media discussed ways to mitigate the COVID-19 misinformation-disinformation epidemic. This single-season podcast will feature all the infodemic sessions as single episodes. The following is one of the conference presentations, entitled The Role of Governments and Religious Leaders in Mitigating Disinformation. The panelists were Mayor Adrian Perkins of Shreveport, Louisiana, and Rev. Dr. Gabriel Salguero, the President of the National Latino Evangelical Coalition. The panel moderator was Dr. Matthew Strelo, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Stanford. Enjoy. Welcome. Thanks to everyone for coming to uh, the COVID infodemic conference put on by Stanford Emergency Medicine. I'm Dr. Matt Strelo. I am a, an associate professor of emergency medicine, vice chair of strategy, and the director of Stanford Emergency Medicine International. And I'm going to introduce our two guests for this panel. We have Reverend Dr. Gabriel Soguero, who is the founder of the National Latino Evangelical Coalition which offers an important leadership voice to close to 8 million Latino evangelicals in our country. He serves on the board of directors of the National Association of Evangelicals and is a pastor in Orlando, Florida at the Gathering Place. He has been named one of the most influential Latino evangelical leaders by the Huffington Post and CNN. He's a feature writer for On Faith, and he served as an advisor to the White House on issues of immigration, health care, and the faith community. We're also joined by Adrian Perkins, who is the mayor of Shreveport, Louisiana. He attended West Point and was elected the first African-American class president in West Point's history. During his service, he was deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan and was awarded the Bronze Star. Following his military service, he attended Harvard Law School. In 2018, he was elected mayor of Shreveport. Mayor Perkins was quick to act in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, utilizing technology to geolocate cases of COVID-19 in the city. Welcome, Mayor Perkins, and welcome, Reverend Salguero. Thank you. Glad to be here. Same. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for joining me. So let me start by asking you both a question, and maybe you can feel that one at a time, but I know you've both been involved in a lot of efforts at how faith organizations and the government can combat misinformation. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the most successful efforts that you've been a part of in combating disinformation during the pandemic? The way that we're really combating disinformation out there is through relationships, honestly. If you think about it, people are bombarded with misinformation through their phones all day if they're on social media. We have some conservative radio stations here as well that put out misinformation and, you know, they're constantly getting it. So what we're doing is not only using my platform as the mayor through our social media outlets, but also more formal outlets. We're talking about it at city council meetings. We're talking about it whenever leaders gather here. But we're really talking about it with our friends and family in our homes and at gatherings that we have and talking about why it's so important to get vaccinated and what vaccines mean. Uh, We're answering people's questions. We're being patient through relationships with people that we really know. So we're not forcing anything down anyone's throat. We're just talking about the accurate information that we're, we're getting from healthcare professionals. We're seeing that incremental growth as far as adopting the vaccinations. We saw it as far as getting COVID tested. We saw it as far as making sure people were behaving responsibly all the way back to the beginning of quarantine. So relationships is a way that we're really combating that, a really effective way that we're combating that here. 
Yeah, I think the mayor's quite right. I think it all begins and ends with relationships. I would add that partnerships are essential. So in the case of our coalition, we partner with the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and the Office of Health and Human Services to have webinars in the target language. As you know, among Latinos, there's some historical vaccine hesitancy and there's some historical distrust of healthcare systems because of some of the access hurdles they've had to jump. So what we've done is we've done webinars in Spanish with the CDC. We've also had, beyond the healthcare professionals and the epidemiologists, we've also had the grandmothers and the mothers who are really at the front line saying, hey, this is why I think my kids and my grandkids should do it. And then, of course, we've had Sundays where we've talked about the importance of loving your neighbor as yourself and that vaccination is a step of loving your neighbor as yourself. And so we've had vaccine information Sundays. There is quite an avalanche, as the mayor says of misinformation or disinformation that we have to overcome on WhatsApp, on media platforms. And so we need to partner with trusted voices, both in the medical profession, but on the local base, grandmas, barbershops, and pastors, of course. Yeah, it's interesting. We had Italo Brown, a physician that I work with on earlier, and I actually sought out his advice on talking to people and how to connect with people that were heavily against vaccination and masking and COVID and were heavy into disinformation. And his response was, it's got to be a personal experience. And although the disinformation and misinformation is coming off from, from social media and other sources, the way that to be effective was going to be through those personal relationships. And it sounds like that's both of your experiences as well. Absolutely. Mayor Perkins, let me ask you, what is the responsibility of social media companies in combating misinformation? And what role does government play in regards to working with social media companies on misinformation? Well, the current role is undefined, right? I can, I can tell you what I wish their role would be, and I wish their role would be a lot more engaged and proactive about diffusing and, and neutralizing and even completely eradicating the misinformation that's online. You know, I've seen some of the measures that they've put in place with, if there's a post about COVID-19, you know, there'll be a little banner that'll give a warning that, you know, hey, this could be misinformation. If you want accurate information, visit the CDC website, things of that nature. But how about we completely remove it from the equation? Uh, if you have the algorithms or even the manpower to completely search your, your platforms to find that, hey, this is about COVID-19, how about we build something that if somebody's putting out blatantly false information, that there is no need for a banner. You completely remove it because whether or not that banner is there, people are still susceptible to that, especially if it's appealing to their, you know, worser demons or if they've heard it from you know, a political party or, um, you know, some other trusted source that's putting out that misinformation. So I, I wish that social media platforms, the technology community was a lot more engaged and active alongside us that are down here fighting it at the local level so that we wouldn't have to put up as much of a fight and we could all be working towards getting our community, protecting our communities as best as possible. So do you think there's a role then for regulation of that and how that plays? 100%. There is a role for regulation. And I know, you know, you, you got two ends of the political spectrum, you know, one end doesn't believe in a lot of regulation. So I really wish that the tech community, the social media community would get together and build those regulations that are the same across the board. But like I said, I do know what I would want those regulations to look like. And I would want them to be a lot more proactive in combating misinformation and a lot more aggressive. This virus is extremely aggressive, and I think that their approach needs to be the same so that we can overcome it sooner rather than later. Thank you.
Reverend Saguero, why is it critical that faith leaders are involved in uh, combating misinformation and, and how, how are they being involved in these outreach campaigns? Well, first, let me speak a little bit to this previous conversation you and, and the mayor were having. I think that social media platforms, as part of our democracy, have to engage in social responsibility. They are agents of our community, and, and there's a moral, ethical responsibility to the clientele that uses the, the, the media platforms. And so when you talk about regulation, I, I think that there should be much more self-regulation, and there should be much more a higher ethical St. Augustine of Hippo, the famous African theologian of the third century, says we have to seek the highest good. And part of that is social responsibility. In the democratization of social media platforms, that does not excuse us or exempt us from moral responsibility and truth telling. Right. So democracy is not absence truth. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater just because you have freedom of speech. And I think that my moral call or invitation is for much more social responsibility and engagement of monitoring untruths that can lead to death or serious illness. In terms of the, the role of the pastor, the faith leader, the clergy person, the, the rabbi, the imam, look, I as a pastor have 52 weekends a year where I teach to people. In addition to our other platforms, we have, I hope they don't feel a captive audience, but we have a consistent audience where they trust us. We baptize their children, we marry, we bury. And so part of our social responsibility as trusted brokers is to speak the truth. I'm a Christian, and so I take from the words of Scripture, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so part of that is because we're trusted brokers, we should leverage that moral influence and platform to consistently bring the message of why vaccinations are part of our social responsibility and self-care. Yeah, I like that lens of an ethical lens on why companies need to act. That's always a challenge, though, when working with private companies, I think. And so finding that balance of regulation and having the ethics of the company. Mayor Perkins, what role does mistrust in government play in the uptake of misinformation during the pandemic? Because there's been some discussion earlier today about how a general mistrust in government has potentially led to, you know, a worsening uptake of information and a lack of trust in the government sources. Yeah, there is, especially if you talk about demographics within our society that have been historically marginalized. The number one case cited when wondering why African-Americans aren't adopting this vaccine as quickly as every other group is the Tuskegee experiment. That was a, you know, a national organization that, that ran that experiment. But I'll tell you what's exacerbated that mistrust is the political nature of this particular virus and a politicization of this virus. It depends whether or not you are a Republican or a Democrat standing behind a podium and what you say on whether or not people actually are listening and whether or not they trust you. So now it's worse. There's not just that normal distrust of government. You've pushed that gap even further if the person that's putting out the information isn't a part of your political party. And that's extremely unfortunate. One thing that I've done in response to that, because we have acknowledged that as well, is I've leveraged the faith community. Uh, Reverend Sulgar, you, you couldn't have put it any better. Partnerships are extremely important. Uh, when they won't listen to an elected official, uh, whether or not I have a DRNR behind my by name, or they won't listen to one of my staff members or somebody that represents the state, they will listen to their pastors. They will listen to the grandmothers of the church. They'll listen to the mothers in the church as well. And we've had to leverage those partnerships around the community in order to create those relationships and push back on not just the disinformation, but also push back on that lack of trust between the government. 
Um, that's how we've overcome that hurdle to date. Reverend? Yeah, I, look, I think that we cannot ignore, right? I think it behooves us to not ignore the historical distrust. In the African-American community, Tuskegee. In the Latino communities, the sterilization of Latina young women in the 19, late 60s, early 70s. And so I think that if we're really going to overcome vaccine hesitancy in government and in the religion, we need to acknowledge some of these historically justifiable distrust. We also cannot ignore the distrust in institutions, mostly government. Robert Putnam, the Harvard sociologist, writes about this kind of distrust in institutions uh, of the last two or three decades. And, and so we need to start to rebuild trust, number one, by addressing that health should not be a hyper-partisan or politicized issue, that whether you're a Democrat or Republican and independent, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, whether you're disengaged politically, people's health are important. Your fellow citizens' health is important. And I think that, that we need much more collaboration across the political spectrum. But let me just say this. I'm a pastor, right? And I was trained as an ethicist. Courage is in high demand and low supply. But it takes courage sometimes to say, look, I know what you've heard, independent of your political party. Here are, as Dragnet would say, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And then people can make an informed decision. Once it becomes partisanized or hyper-politicized, it becomes almost intractable. And that's why you need the trusted partners, the grandma, the mother, the, the barbershop keeper to do this. And so we have to acknowledge, one, the historical justifiable incidences that created distrust. Number two, the hyper-politicized nature of the conversations around health. And number three, that we need a broad coalition to reach a broad constituency around this issue. It's life or death. It's just life or death. So am I hearing from both of you that you do think that religion is able to to bridge the hyperpolarization in some respects and that religion hasn't separated into its corners? I would add the adjective good religion. <laughs> right. Health healthy religion. Right? Faith like any other reality can be co-opted. Right? So faith leaders can become hyper-political and hyper-partisan. We're human beings, we're frail, we're fragile. And so if the pastor, if the rabbi, if the imam, if the local faith leader, clergy, priest is interested in the health of his or her community, they must resist the temptation of politicization and partisanship. And it is a very real temptation in the 21st century, in the second decade. And so it's not enough to say religion. St. James calls it good religion, (laughs) good religion, like a civil rights icon, you know, called good trouble. Well, there's good religion and there's bad religion. Religion, too, can become an instrument of bifurcation and, and, and dichotomy and partisanship. And so we have to be good stewards of our influence to help and serve the people God has called us to serve. I'm, I'm, I'm going to use the, the good reverence terminology on this and say for the good religion that we have here in Shreveport, we have a, a case of how that was leveraged to really improve the condition of our community. And it made the front page of The Washington Post uh, early in the pandemic. Uh, when we were trying to figure out what was going on, everybody was trying to figure out exactly what we were dealing with. Uh, my office, we had the bright idea to geolocate where our COVID cases were. And we were able to identify the fact that it was in our high density neighborhoods. It happened to be African-American neighborhoods here in the inner city of Shreveport. 
So we were able to see that this was disproportionately impacting African-Americans. At the time, it was a bunch of rumors and disinformation that was out there that African-Americans were immune or not getting it as much. Uh, So we were the first people in our state and one of the first cities in the country to actually identify that this virus was disproportionately impacting communities of color, urban areas uh, within with right here in Shreveport. The first thing that I did was I went to our faith community. The first call that I made, I was on a call with about 40 or 50 pastors, brought them together. And I said, hey, this is the information that we have. And we know for a fact that this is acutely affecting your congregations. I need you to help me get the messaging out so that everybody is adhering to CDC guidelines, staying away from each other, making sure they quarantine. And soon after that call and soon after my engagement with the faith community, we saw a precipitous drop in cases throughout our city. Uh, I I do think that that wasn't just a correlation. I think there was some causation there because we went to such a trusted source. So even if they weren't listening to City Hall at the time, they were absolutely listening to the pastors that were preaching on Sundays. So that's an example of good faith, good good religion. But on the flip side here in Louisiana, not in my particular community, there has been a lot of churches that have weaponized the political nature of this virus. And we've had church pastors make themselves, you know, martyrs to get arrested, to completely buck the governor's orders where churches shouldn't convene, still calling their entire congregations together and making a show out of it. So Yeah, religion can very well be a force of good in this fight. And we've seen that here in Shreveport. And it can be a force for bad as well. And we see that throughout the state of Louisiana. Are there clear next steps where our religious leaders and our government leaders can form partnerships and build bridges? I'm going to highlight some best practices that I've been a part of. And I appreciate the mayor, Shreveport, uh, highlighting those good practices. Uh, I'm tempted to go to Shreveport and give him a, a Pentecostal hug. <laughs> I grew up Pentecostal. Come on down. We're, we'd love to have you. Yes. So I, I will say, look, we did a public service announcement together with the Ad Council where we had African-American clergy and Latino clergy because we were disproportionately impacted. And the New York Times covered it in the front page. It was shocking how much pushback we got on that. It was shocking. I always thought if I would be in the front cover in the New York Times, I would be lauded. Well, it wasn't all lauded, I I assure you. And so there needs to be consistency and persistency. But I think that public service announcement with the Ad Council, and now the the Pope, Pope Francis, has made a public service announcement in English and Spanish, talking about the positive of the vaccine. There is a weekly call with the White House and faith leaders, of of which I'm a part, dealing with issues of, of vaccine hesitancy and other things. And then in my local jurisdiction in Orange County, uh, Orlando, Florida, our, our mayor, Mayor Demings, is working with the faith leaders in creating those networks. And so there are already best practices. My encouragement to everyone who's listening and faith leaders is to build those best practices to scale. Partner with your local mayor, your local council person. Partner with the CDC and HHS. There are plenty of things out there and be consistent. Do not relent because the disinformation is an avalanche on what's happened. I mean, the theories from the mark of the beast to Latinos are being tracked by the vaccine has been almost insurmountable. And so you have to be consistent. You have to be persistent and you have to partner with those platforms that will put a megaphone to this good message of people really considering getting one of the vaccines to save their lives and the lives of the people around them. We only have a couple more minutes before we'll take a few questions from the audience, but let me ask you, as we move from, and we're not there yet, you're even close, but as we think to the future and when the COVID-19 crisis has passed, 
what are some of the commitments that we can make or that we or lessons that we've learned during this time that we can use to minimize health systems kind of retreating from tackling these inequities that exist within accessing general healthcare resources to rephrase that i think there's been an effort now to reach out to communities that have been underserved and i think there's lessons that we need to take there to continue that forward far beyond COVID-19. And so I'm wondering if you could take a moment and talk about some of those lessons you've learned and maybe some ways you could see us continuing those efforts. I'll say that we, I mean, if, if anything, we've learned from this particular virus and the way that it really preys on the comorbidities that already existed in our communities, especially the marginalized communities. Uh, Louisiana is nowhere near the top. As a matter of fact, we're at the bottom when it came to healthy states in the country. So it made us even more susceptible, our citizens even more susceptible of getting really sick. So if you think about, hey, the vaccinations is a way to protect us from this particular virus, we have to think in larger terms to say, hey, general health care and general health is a way to protect us from future viruses as well. We can't just say we want our community to to survive this particular pandemic, but then not take the necessary steps to protect them in the future from other pandemics or other threats in general. So I think this has been a lesson learned to say, hey, just accepting these massive health disparities in neighborhoods, whether it's, you know, by racial or socioeconomic status, should be unacceptable to all of us because you are setting them up for failure in the future just in case we experience something like this or in general. Uh, nobody should be put to that kind of faith because of what neighborhood they grew up in. So I think that this virus, unfortunately, has shown us some good things about the way that we need to move forward and not just the bad side of this virus. And we're grateful for it here. And I know that our Louisiana Department of Health has been taking note as well. So I hope to see things like the Affordable Care Act strengthened as we move forward so that everybody in America can have the opportunity to get affordable, accessible health care. And we don't have those comorbidities that exist, again, because of the neighborhood that you grow in. So I think there are some broader lessons to be learned here. I think that's absolutely correct. There are historical chasms on issues of access to quality health care, dealing with uh, pre-existing conditions and comorbidities. I was on a call with the Advent Healthcare System in, in our state with the chief medical officer. And one of the questions is, what are the lessons learned for economically disadvantaged and racial ethnic minorities that have historically had challenges to access? It's not just about healthcare; it's about access to quality healthcare, and we have to move beyond. In what my estimation is, kind of just token events of a clinic once every three years in our communities. There has to be kind of a interstitial, systemic response, including including sustained conversations with insurance companies, with broad healthcare systems, with telehealth, because our communities are part of the digital divide, part of the economic, right, including pharmaceutical deserts and hospital deserts in certain communities where people have to drive and get on a bus for 40 minutes to get to a quality health care. And so if we've learned anything from COVID, and I'm sure we've learned a lot, one of the things is we have to deal with quality access to health care that is systemic, including payment, <laughs> the cost of health care, access, and the communities we serve having those access points more easily attainable. 
Reverend, you, you, you hit that mark on the head about doing a health clinic in these in our disadvantaged neighborhoods every three years. That adds to the distrust as well. Uh, let's be clear. You know, that will build on itself over time to where if they don't see uh, the healthcare systems in your community, but once every couple of years and then this pandemic breaks out and they start seeing very unfamiliar faces flooding their neighborhoods, asking them to take a vaccine, uh, that's not going to bode well for a lot of people. So yet again, that's another lesson that we need to learn. This isn't a distrust that just sprouted up because of this particular thing. We have been systemically putting those seeds of doubt into our communities for some time now. Do you both think that the focus on public health infrastructure and funding, you know, healthcare access in our communities and equity of access will improve the appetite in this country for expanding healthcare services and increasing healthcare coverage? My prayer is that it will. I am concerned that oftentimes when we have these ambitious projects, a certain segment, usually middle class, but the poor or the extremely poor are cut out of that. And so we often have these conversations. I'm a pastor, right? And so I always think about who is the most vulnerable, right? And often in these conversations, these help some access for middle class, but those who are really below the poverty line don't have it. And so I pray that it does, but I do pray that those who are below the poverty line, who are really barely making it, are able to benefit from these ambitious and I hope noble initiatives. And and I'd second that. I I pray about it as well. I hope so as well. It would just be even a greater tragedy if we don't take the experiences that we've learned over the last year and a half and we don't invest those lessons learned into a better future for all of our citizens. We it has been some very rough lessons. We need to make sure that we are setting up our future, uh, the children of the future, the society of the future for success and don't allow them to repeat some of the same mistakes that we did. How can we as physicians engage with religious and government leaders in a way that's productive and effective? I think, number one, thank you for that question, we the physicians. I think that number one is we really need to do a lot of work about physicians having a much more openness to religious leaders. Right. I think there, there are some presuppositions and assumptions about religious leaders that were anti-medicine, anti-science. Some of those justifiable because there have been some leaders who've been anti-medicine and anti, but that there are so many religious leaders who are pro-medicine, who want to partner with physicians. But you, there has to be intentionality. Those healthcare systems should go to the religious organizations and most cities have interfaith councils and seek to have conversations with them. They have clergy associations and have that conversation with those clergy who who are really, really allies in this fight for health and access. Yeah, and I'll speak on behalf of government. I can tell you Treeport, Louisiana is a case study on this partnership between government and the physicians. One of the largest parts of our economy is our healthcare system here. And our healthcare system has been right there alongside me from the beginning of this pandemic. Um, marching forward, not just the healthcare leadership and the administrators, but also the doctors, the nurses, you name it. Anytime we had a community event where we were putting out information and we were doing COVID testing, the doctors, the nurses were right there on the front line. Anytime we've had community events where we've encouraged the vaccine, we just did that. We were one of the first cities in the country to do the $100 giveaway for that. I was talking to doctors, nurses at the site. I was talking to medical school students at the site. So the physicians here in Shreveport, they have very much come together right beside government 
and we have been working in lockstep moving forward. They are the healthcare experts. They're continually providing us with the necessary and the most up-to-date information. We have a medical school here in LSU Medical School. We have LSU Health Sciences that actually participated in the trials for the vaccine. So, I, you know, I can brag about my community all day, but we wouldn't have made the progress that we made without that partnership, that very close bond between government elected officials and the physicians. So thank you all for your service as well. Jumping into this career is very dangerous right now, but we need you. Communities need you. This country needs you. So thank you all for what you do. Mayor and Reverend, thank you for joining us at the Infodemic Conference. And we really appreciate both you joining us, but also your leadership during this pandemic. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this session of Infodemic, a Stanford conference on social media and COVID-19 misinformation. We invite you to listen to the other important discussions and presentations that occurred at the conference, each available as individual episodes of this podcast. All 10 sessions are archived together. Just search Infodemic on the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, alium.com, or through summer 2022 on our website, stanfordinfodemic.org. A video recording of the entire conference is available on the Stanford Department of Emergency Medicine YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us.